The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Natalie. Well, welcome to everybody. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft, and uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Praise Music Row. And I uh, would love to get to know you better as we have so many opportunities to do that over the next... Um, today and weeks. Um, you know, one of my friend's birthdays was this week, and um, he's a friend that goes way back. Uh, we're talking like middle school, elementary, all that kind of stuff, and uh, we have traveled, uh, uh, actually world together. We used to do trips in Europe and those kind of things, and uh, he played sports together and uh, just continued to, you know, keep up and talk and Great guy. He was also in my wedding and as um, a groomsman, and it kind of made me think of a story of uh, when we got married, my wife and I, Megan, in Houston, Texas, um, uh, almost 25 years ago, 24 years ago, but um, we uh, are, I remember, and now a lot of people get like a bus and the whole wedding party will go from the, the uh, ceremony to the reception. Um, and we actually didn't. We, you know, went on our own in, in uh, the limo, and then the wedding party was to meet, and, and they're all kind of in separate cars and stuff. And I remember we get to the reception, and there are all of uh, the bridesmaids. And for a good 45 minutes, maybe even an hour, we're sitting there hanging out, dancing, enjoying the party. And then all of a sudden, all of my groomsmen come in, just totally disheveled. And I'm like, what in the world? What took you so long? Like, where have you been? And, and this friend of mine being one of them. Um, and 
gosh, I was like, okay, what, what was the deal? And they're like, yeah, we were, we were driving and driving, and uh, we just we just didn't know where we were going. And and well, you know, they have these little maps that they give you sometimes at the end of like a wedding ceremony. They're sometimes folded in or on the back of like the the uh, bulletin, right? And a lot of times they'll put like a cross for the church or a heart for the reception or whatever, and they'll show you like a map where everything is. Well, they're driving along in Houston, by the way. Remember, this is an enormous city. They're on this highway going 45 minutes out to who knows where, San Antonio, I think is where they were headed. And they were probably halfway there. And they realized, uh, let's pull up. We're not getting anywhere. Let's pull over. And the first person who was driving, like the front car where everybody was following along, was like, yeah, we're following. This is where we're going. And they pointed, and they're driving to the key at the bottom, the key that says cross equals church, heart equals reception. Like they were going not to where it was to where they thought they were never going to reach it. And just remember, these are the people I asked to represent me in my wedding. Like, this guy, he went to UVA, dude. You know where you're going. Come on. Um, like they were never going to reach it. Uh, this is a parable and uh, possibly one that you're familiar with. Parable of a prodigal son. Even if you're here this morning, maybe uh, you're, you're not familiar with church or, or, or the Bible. Uh, this is a, as much as probably the, the good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son is a really, really well-known parable. It's known for and used as a parable just to talk about a lot of things and talk about like waywardness or whatever. But really what this whole chapter is about, chapter 15, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about what does it really mean to be lost? And what does it really mean to be found? Very simple. In fact, housed within chapter 15 are a number of parables, this one being the largest one and most well known, of what does it mean to be lost and what does it mean to be found? And over and over, Jesus is asking that. And, and, and I think for us, maybe if you're here, there have been a number of books written on this, and, and incredible ones, uh, Tim Keller being one that wrote On the Prodigal God. It would be easy for us this morning, if you've read books like that or heard this parable, to kind of downshift and say, yeah, this is that, that parable. Oh, yeah, there's, there are two sons. There's this one who goes away, and there's one who stays, and yeah, okay, this week we're going to look at the first son and the first brother. Next week we're going to look at the other one. But don't downshift. Work this morning, and I want to encourage you not to downshift into the thought of, yeah, I know what this is about, but to say, do I? Because actually what it means to be lost isn't so much thinking that you know where everything is. It's keeping going and thinking that you know, and you're, you know you're going in the right direction and you're completely missing it. You might not even know how lost you really are. And maybe you've come into the walls of the church all your life. So we're going to look at this parable and this particular part of this parable for two, two ways. One, we're just going to simply look at what does it mean to be the younger brother or younger son? What's younger son lostness? What does that mean? What does that mean to be lost as a younger son? And then what is the father's reception? So the younger son and the father's reception, how does he receive him back? You know, to provide some background on the story and, and kind of you, you see this uh, as the parable even begins, it says there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now, in that time period, in the ancient Near East, if they begin, for us, we may begin this parable like, okay, dude kind of wants his stuff and leave. All right. If they heard this, this way, and if you continue to ask people how this is received, it is received with great outrage. In fact, to begin this parable, this story this way, and even with this first line, the hearers would have said, no, 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 no. <laughs> that would not happen. Not only would a son not ask that question, but a father to do it, to actually follow through and give the inheritance, to liquidate his property and give it, it would be a complete outrage. And such a rejection, not only of the father, but everything about it, about their home, his upbringing, his life. In fact, there's a, a commentator named Kenneth Bailey who's written a lot on uh, this. He's written a lot on ancient Near East culture. He's been there. He actually says, and he's asked this question over and over to those about this parable, is this something that would be asked? Could this happen? Over and over, no, never, not at all. In fact, children who are asked of this in that culture could be beaten for asking this question. Because what was being asked was to say, rejection of the father of, of not only, hey, I want your stuff, but I actually don't want you. It's tantamount to saying, I want my father dead. Because the property, the inheritance, in order to actually receive it, the patriarch, the father, would have to die. In fact, even with, if he liquidated all of this son's, you know, one-third of his share, he still couldn't even receive that, that share, that assets, until the father actually died. And so for him to actually do it meant, I not only want your stuff, I want you out of my life, I want you dead. It was an outrage. It was a rejection. And to even go on further for him to say in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country. What is he doing into a distant land? He's not just going traveling. Jesus draws out in the parable that he's rejecting not only the father, but everything about what he knew. Every part of his upbringing. He didn't want anything to do with it. And Jesus is wanting to get his hearers to understand what, what do we do with the Father? This rejection, wanting his things without him, to walk away from all of that. You know, it's an interesting thing because in a lot of ways, this happens often. We talk about, even in here, maybe some people, and I remember this, especially when I was a campus minister uh, over at Vanderbilt for several years, I would see, gosh, droves of students who come from a churched background and many of you may even be in this room feeling these very things. And you've grown up with this inherited faith, this faith that you, you didn't necessarily choose, but you're like, this is just kind of the way of life. It's kind of what it is. It's kind of what we do. But at any moment, it feels so easy to walk away from it. At any moment, it feels so easy to just kind of say, why am I doing this? Is this just kind of a nicety? Is this a social thing to do, especially in a city with so many churches? Is it just kind of a part of the culture? Why do I need it? The rejection is simple because it's, it's not really in us. And it, what it is, it's even 
connected somehow. And sometimes even we start connecting and we feel this shame sometimes and we also see it in the way we talk about Christianity that, that when following Jesus is attached to anything of following a certain political party, a certain idea, a certain social group, that we immediately go, I don't want any of that. Or the person we're talking to says, why would I want any of that? I remember living in Dallas uh, before we moved uh, to go to seminary. I lived next door to this group who worked for Bacardi, uh, and their house was as fun as like a bunch of people who work for Bacardi. Uh, they threw a bunch of parties a lot, and uh, we shared a fence between us. And I remember having this discussion with one of the guys who lived there about uh, just Christianity. He knew you know, I was pastor at the time, um, and uh, we were working on the fence because we shared this, and we were like, hey, let's fix it. And I remember just asking him, and we were talking about it, and he goes, just honestly, as somebody who is not a follower of Jesus, he was kind of like, I don't, I don't know if I really want to follow him, because I know, and, and wisely put, I know it means I would have to give up control. I know it means that I have to give up this certain control in order to follow him, in order to do this thing. But here's the thing about it, and this is what the, the, the son shows us. It's not simply this rejection of the father. Anything we reject, we're always going to replace. There's always a replacement. Notice what he says. It's, the younger son gathered his things in verse 13, took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went after something else. It, it may not have been the father whom he looked at as, oh, maybe I just don't want to be underneath him anymore, but there's something else controlling him. <laughs> there was a replacement of those things. There was something that, that was running his life, something he gave to. And that rejection is always works in that way. Henry Nouwen uh, is a guy who wrote a book also on the prodigal son, but he wrote his from an interesting perspective. He wrote it from his encounter with Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. And at the very beginning of the book, he talks about how um, him looking into this painting and really seeing, uh, and if you should see it's beautiful, and him, his deep descriptions of it, of the father with his hands over the shoulders of this tattered, and you kind of just see the back of the prodigal son, but his head turned, his hair shaved almost, his clothing so tattered it looks like it's barely hanging on of him. His feet, where sandals or, or some sort of shoe would be, you can see the back of his feet all blistered. And the light and the composition and what it does, it says that when he first saw it, it, it was captivating to him. And that when he went to see the actual painting from Rembrandt, he finally got access to it. He spent, he said, over two days, five hours just sitting, staring into the heart of this painting. And what he drew from it, and I love his taking, he said, the question that he realized what he was looking at as this, is, as this arms of this son wrapped around his father's basically thighs and knees was asking a question, where is my home? We replace home with something else. Where do I belong? Do I belong to the Father or do I belong to this world? Where do I belong? 
Because we're always asking that question. And Nowen was honest. He said, we're always asking the question. And don't, remember, don't downshift at this moment. Remember this question because we do it and we hide it as adults, but we ask it all the time. Of everything around us, do you really love me? Am I really safe here? Do you really care about me? And often, and what I find fascinating about this parable that Jesus adds in this, when we find that the prodigal son is asking this question of everything in every place, is he puts this addendum in verse 16, and he was longing. He starts, he loses all his money. He has to eat with pigs, which was not only putting him in a socially horrible category, but religiously. He couldn't even, if he wanted to go back to a temple, he couldn't because he's eating with pigs which were unclean to Jewish people. But then he adds this very, just kind of last thing in verse 16. He says, and no one gave him anything. He feels his need. He goes to all of those things to ask that question, to find it, and no one gave him anything. Because the love that he wanted and he needed could not come back to him. John Newton, who wrote the, uh, that famous hymn we all sing, Amazing Grace, we have it in our head, really fits well with even with this parable. He wrote a letter to a couple uh, who was getting married one time. And um, he wrote to them to encourage them about their marriage. And it was interesting, a couple of the little things that he wrote to them. One of the things that he said was, be careful of the things like the, the sins, the problems, the, the, the brokenness that you bring into your marriage that's going to just totally subvert, you know, your, your relationship with the Lord. But he said, even more so, be careful of a, a good marriage. He said, he said it this way. He said, you know, the prospect of a bad marriage may be it, but every bit of the danger is a prospect of a good marriage where everything is okay, where you put everything into that and you forget the ultimate love that that person can't house. Any relationship that we go to that we try and seek to draw from in a belonging sense that they can't make us feel belong over and above where we are. But the parable's driving us to that. It's saying, who really drives us to that so that we know that we can be loved? so that we know that we can be brought in. See, in verse 17, it's interesting. He says, he remembered. He, he came to his senses, but he came to himself, he said. How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? There's some moment where he comes to himself and he says, what am I doing? And he's probably thought through all the angles. And he thinks, okay, I, I know what I've done. I, the only thing I can do is go back. And everybody in this room knows that moment where we've disappointed a parent or an authority figure and we realize the one we have to go back to is that one, that person, and to confess what we've done or admit. And there's that little space between when you realize that and the actual face-to-face -face going to that you start doing anything and everything in your head and your heart. You start saying, whoa, what, what, how do I soften this? What do I say? 
Now, how do I make this work? How do I get back into their favor? Even, and that, isn't that exactly where he goes? He came to himself, and what does he say? He goes, I will say this to him in verse 18. I'll rise and say this, and he tells a speech. I've sinned. And then he not only that says, I got a speech, but he has a plan. He says, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned in heaven against you. I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. A hired servants was somebody that, that wasn't even let in the house. It was somebody who would work and then leave. They weren't even a, a normal one who would work within the home. So he has a speech and a plan. And this is where he goes. And all of us know that. Gosh, I remember a day when I got my license and I was driving my car and I decided that <clears throat> I was going to do reverse down my block because I didn't want to turn around. And so I literally put it in reverse and gunned it and went like 35 or 40 backwards down my block. I was like, this ought to be easy. Not realizing my dad was there watching me. And there I am, like I get to that point and he goes, if you ever... Do that. I'm like, oh, what do I say? And there's those moments in my head like, oh, I didn't want to turn around. I couldn't, I got stuck in reverse. You know, like you start thinking like someone else was driving. You know, like what? What's the reaction of the father? Because every single one of us in this room think that the father would do exactly what my dad did. This guy not only in outrage to everyone listening, takes his stuff and leaves and basically says overtly, I wish you were dead. I don't need anything with you. Comes back to him face to face. As much as it would be an outrage at the beginning of the parable, how much do you think this side of the parable would throw everyone listening off? That we would think his reception... <clears throat> As he says, I've lost being a son. And he approaches him, he says, I'll be your slave. That's what we're used to. And in fact, I think we approach not only our Heavenly Father that way, we approach most every relationship that way. We approach the Heavenly Father thinking, even during confession maybe, will he really take me back? Does he really care about me like that? God, the speech, the speech has got to work. I'll earn it. I, I, that's what I can do. I can earn it back. Do you know what God's heart is for you? God's heart is to love you when you think you should be punished. When you think you shouldn't deserve it. The Father... What does he do? He doesn't stand there like this. He doesn't have his own speech ready for him. He runs to him. And, and guess what? I brought up the Jesus Storybook Bible because we're a bunch of people in this room that need to be brought down from our, yes, the prodigal son, this is a beautiful story. We need to hear again the simple truths as children of what our Father does as he approaches us. Listen. As he starts for home, though, he begins to worry. This is the, the son, the younger son. Dad won't love me anymore. I'm too bad. 
He won't want me for his son anymore. So he practices the I'm sorry speech. All this time, what does he not know is that day after day, his dad has been standing on the porch, straining his eyes, looking into the distance, waiting for his son to come home. He just can't stop loving him. He longs for the sound of his boy's voice. He can't be happy until he gets him back. And the son is still a long way off, but his dad sees him coming. And what will the dad do? Fold his arms and frown? Shout, that'll teach you? And just you wait, young man? No. That's not how this story goes. The dad leaps off the porch, races down the hill, through the gap in the hedge, up the road. Before the son can even begin his I'm sorry speech, his dad runs to him, throws his arms around him, and cannot stop kissing him. And if you think the first part of this parable was an outrage, imagine this side. I remember sitting with someone some time ago talking about this very parable, and their reaction to it was, that could never happen. They were being honest. They're like, this just doesn't work today. And I literally looked at her and I said, exactly. Exactly. It doesn't. <laughs> because we're so used to the other. We're so used to the folded arms. The scolding. The looking at us with, with cutting eyes. And he begins his speech. And that's what we think needs to happen. Okay, repentance. You know, there's a difference between repentance and penance. What this guy tries to do is penance. He figures out a speech, figures out a plan, and if I can get back into it, it works. Do you know what repentance is? Repentance isn't turning from, and this is what the, the prodigal son does, right? This son does, this first son, he says, if I do it good this way, then I'll move from my bad things to my good things, and then I'm going to be in relationship with my father. You know what? What does the father do? He cuts him off. He begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against you. And he's like, nope, get the fatted calf. We're throwing a party. Cuts him off. Party time. Because that is what the son needs to hear. It's not about him earning it back. It's, repentance isn't turning from bad things to good things so that you're good with Jesus. Do you know it's about turning from bad things and good things to Jesus? It's about turning to the Father. The Father doesn't want his attention on the good things. He wants his attention on him. He wants him to celebrate. He wants him to live in the relationship with him, in the love that he has. That is the huge difference between those things. And most of us here may work from that, if I get back into good things, it's about getting into relationship with our Lord who loves us, the one who's done this for us. <laughs> I love what G.K. Chesterton said. There was a British newspaper that asked this, this question. He said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, the, that great English theologian who had just such the incredible sarcasm and wit, wrote back the most simple, simple th answer to them. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. It's coming as we are. See, the joy in the Christian life isn't you having it all together. 
It's not having the speech. It's not having the plan. It's being in relationship with him. The joy is that the person telling this story is the one that he wants you to know that there's a whole other section to this. You know, when we come to this table, it's a feast. And you know what's interesting about this parable? It ends with a celebration. He says, it cuts him off in the speech. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. The best robe was probably the father's robe. He says, kill the fatted calf. Uh, to, to actually kill the calf would mean a lot of prep for a lot of people, and it would be very expensive. And a lot of people hearing this story, and you may be here this morning hearing this story again going, sweet. That's a great great parable. I always loved this parable. And maybe even hearing it, you're like, where's the cost in it, though? There's like a hitch. Isn't there a hitch in this? Because just like the people hearing it in the first century, they were like, why are all these people called sinners that we actually label sinners coming to you? They deserve, they have to earn it. Where's the cost in it? You know where the cost is? There's a third son in this parable. Yeah, there's the younger one and there's the older one, but there's also the one telling the parable. And the son that's telling the parable is the one that's wanting us to realize the only way we can be found, the only way we can be made alive again is if the cost is taken. And a table like this shows every bit of that. No one can come to this table with a speech. No one can come. (laughs) I, I sure can't come to this table with a plan. We have to come to this table and celebrate, know that we're celebrated over. Not even the sound and scrolling tapes of your shame can tell you you can't take this table. Do you know that the, the third son, the one who takes the cost, is the one who makes it so that you are now a daughter and son, period. There is no change in that title for you. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're in Jesus, this son makes you a daughter and son through his body and blood. He is the sacrifice. This is the party. This is the way. And this is what we take to celebrate the fact that we are loved and cherished and we are home. And so that we can remain there. Any waywardness we have, let this remind you of who keeps you, of where you go back to, of where you're recentered, and how you know who you are in Him. This is safety. This is belonging. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.